Hello, and welcome to the Tartan Tardigrade. This is a podcast brought to you by the UK Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. In the podcast, we talk to astrobiologists from around the world about their research, their careers, and anything else that comes to mind. This time, we are hosting Ernesto Di Mauro from the National Research Council in Sapienza, Italy. He spoke to Rosa and Ophelia in April of 2019. My name is Ernesto Di Mauro, and I am a molecular biologist. I'm proud of it, and I am actually a biologist, and I studied uh, DNA structure and functions all my life, and being somehow, I won't say in love, but struck by the elegance of DNA, I thought, but where all this elegance is coming from, all this perfection? all this capacity of being variable and to adapt to any any place, any niche, any ecological niche, any kind of temperature, whatever. If you have a variable, DNA just fits on it. And that's the question uh, that has no answer but, but astrobiology. So that's the answer, that if you want to understand the origin of life, First, you have to define what is life, or trying to have an idea of what you may call life. And then look for it around. Life is information, and uh, astrobiology is search of information. And what is your definition of life? My definition is the definition by Trifonov. Life is a reproduction with variations, which is the consensus definition of the 127 recently published definitions, which are not longer than a page, but uh, they may come from different uh, scientists of different backgrounds, but philosophers or uh, physiologists or uh, uh, anesthesiologists or uh, physicists. Well, if you do a <coughs> Levi-Strauss slide type of comparison, that is, you extract the words, you compare the words, you define and you look for the common roots of that, then you end up with the definition. Life is a reproduction with variations, which is different from the definition developed by Jerry Joyce in the frame of uh, NASA. That is, life is a chemical system able to undergo Darwinian evolution. Because they look the same, but if you compare the two definitions, the only common word is self. Life is the uh, system that is, uh, well, ju- just compare the, the self. So that means that life is identity of something. So definition of life, you have to define what is that identity. So you said that you think that DNA is particularly like elegant, or um, can you give a particular example, maybe your favorite example, of why you think that? No, it's elegant in itself, because if you think to something that, first of all, self-reproduces, that is the information to do something and to transmit the, that kind of things that is uh, is doing. So... That means that it's uh, 
totally independent unless from the raw materials that is self-organizing and so most likely is autogenitus is uh, it did organize itself of course that is uh, a description of a uh, running towards simplicity so the beauty of dna is the simplicity of its principles just talking like ocam you know the most likely thing is uh, the simplest and dna is not complex it's simple because it has on its own its its own definition and the definition of its eternity okay. can you tell us something about your research i'm looking for the origin of nucleic acids so i totally agree with the principle that nucleic acids started with RNA, which is uh, intrinsic to the molecule. RNA is a molecule that gives uh, complexity since its very beginning, while DNA is an invention of the cell. So first you need RNA, then you have uh, organic into a cell, then you have to invent DNA, then the cell has to invent the system of making the DNA something else is the f- beautiful and elegant product of evolution. But to begin with, you need something that is much more dirty. React. You need a mud. You need something that is self-reacting and making a lot of mistakes. Because if you, if you, do not mista- if you don't make mistakes, you don't evolve. The RNA, if you synthesize it prebiotically, that is, without enzymes, is a molecule that evolves through mistakes. So my... Say my motto is uh, at the beginning there was a mistake. <laughs> Making many mistakes, then you start evolving uh, nucleic acids and functions. The very key of the problem is that you have to find, it's like in politics, you know, the, a good politician is the one that makes his own interest in the interest of the country. RNA was supposed to make his own interest in the interest of evolution. So you need interaction with something that is self-complementary. Uh, I mean, you, you have to interact with amino acids. If the interaction is good for RNA, it's good also for amino acids. At the end, you start to end up with proteins. Or uh, the same thing with the carboxylic acids that organize and make cycles and hardness energy or control energy in itself. Well, if in the same pool you favor the formation of carboxylic acids and of the precursors of RNA, that pool may be fertile in the sense of origin of life. Otherwise, if it's good only for RNA or only for carboxylic acids, it's a few tight cycles that uh, ends nowhere. Um, so what's a particularly exciting result for some of your recent research? Following that principle of simplicity, we just look at the sky, which in the, the, the interstellar dust, which is the most abundant uh, organic compound, is hydrogen cyanide. The most abundant inorganic compound, talking about things with some, some chemical information, of course, three atoms, is water. So you react hydrogen cyanide and water, you get formamide. So the reason the research is to look for the physical chemical conditions in which formamide could give rise to precursors of what you can call uh, life. I mean, genotypes and phenotypes at the same time. So recent research is to look 
four conditions in which you go from very simple information, that is nucleotides, the, uh, nucleic bases and nucleosides, you go to nucleotides, conditions in which you can phosphorylate. Because in this case, you get out of uh, the energy-driven evolution in which everything is already fixed by the chemical laws of the starting materials, that is the hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and uh, nitrogen. And you end up with complexity. A complexity with a bottom-down approach is uh, reaching nucleotides that are able to polymerize. Strange enough, we found that uh, the most efficient way of making a nucleotide is to treat nucleosides with the mimics of solar wind. Given that carbon has the same chemistry all over the universe, by definition, and that at the border of the universe, you put your arm outside the border, you find nothing. So up to that limit, you have uh, one fixed chemistry. And you have stars everywhere, so the same energy is produced by the stars everywhere, or at least a similar panel of energies, depending on the type of stars, of course. So solar wind is very likely to be the source of energy available all over the universe, all over the space-time dimension. Okay. Solar wind phosphorylates very efficiently nucleosides to nucleotides. That's something. The other thing that we found interestingly efficient are the chemical gardens. Chemical gardens are the chemical structures formed on very pristine earth where silicium oxide that formed a very basic environment was able to give rise to chemical structures that were part of the global crust of the planet. These structures do organic synthesis very efficiently. So our idea is that the planet was a, a single unified homogeneous laboratory in which the crust had the right conditions to provide prebiotic chemistry. Because life is very robust. You cannot kill life. You can uh, change the equilibrium, but you cannot kill life. If it's very robust, the origin must have been very robust. And so what more appropriate than a global laboratory all over the planet in which the energy was coming from outside the solar wind and from inside the heat, in which the catalysts were the uh, ultramafic rocks, that is the crust. And carbon source was the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide, methane, uh, and carbon monoxide. Uh, can you think about another molecule other than formamide that will lead to <coughs> macromolecule used in life? And if yes, how different would this macromolecule be? Uh, short answer is uh, yes and uh, no difference. Yes in the sense that All the one-carbon molecules are related. Hydrogen cyanide, uh, formic acid, ammonium formate, uh, formamide, formaldehyde, 
Yeah, they are very similar, depending, they transform one into the other very easily. I mean, I, want, I don't want to be rough and oversimplifying, but depending on the conditions, if you have a, a monument present or if you have these electric discharges, I mean, the reaction will be different, but somehow they are related. So the chemistry is a pool of related chemistries in which you may have sugars first or nucleic basic bases first, but essentially they form together. So the answer is common chemical frame that may give variance according to the physical chemical niche in which you frame your model. So how did you end up doing the research that you do today? By mistake. <laughs> By mistake because <clears throat> we were making uh, footprints of uh, uh, pro DNA protein binding. And a footprint in those, those old times, 20 years ago, were made on sequencing gels. The sequencing gel uh, as a step of DNA denaturation through formamide. Okay, so we made some mistakes in which we were using too much formamide and we were, we were degrading too much DNA. So in order to understand the mistake, I started looking at uh, the problem. Why formamide is increasing DNA degradation? The answer was relatively simple. is that it breaks the nucleic basis, so provokes the faster degradation of the DNA backbone. But then we thought, if you break a base with formamide, you can reverse the reaction. You can make bases with the formamide. And that was it. So we start <coughs> making nucleic bases with formamide very easily. And with any catalyst you can think of, with all the stones you find on the street, all kinds of stones. So basically, your research evolved like RNA by mistakes. <laughs> no, well, well, yeah, no. Uh, it's yeah. like luck. L luck helps who works. Yeah. Okay? So if you don't work, you cannot be yeah, lucky. Sure. Part of your research demonstrated the importance of meteorite in prebiotic chemistry. So uh, can you tell us something about this topic? So if you look for catalysts on this planet, <clears throat> you are essentially naive because <clears throat> this planet is a piece of universe in which uh, silicates had a certain history and uh, carbonates had a certain history, but each single meteorite that falls on the planet is made of the same minerals <clears throat> that add uh, all sorts of different uh, histories and experiences. So a basalt on this planet was was uh, exposed to a certain array of temperatures and uh, very little uh, radiations. A piece of basalt that falls on the planet as a, in the form of a meteorite <clears throat> had a, a different story, which was certainly different. So meteorites represent the products of the whole universe that has been preparing catalysts for us for uh, 14 billion years. So all sorts of um, uh, meteorites are all extremely interesting sources of different catalysts. 
using the same components. So this planet can offer a certain panel of variants, but meteorites offer an enormous panel of variants in f falling into our head since a lot of time, representing all sorts of different conditions. So if you are a smart chemist, look for a catalyst in the meteorites, not on the catalog of uh, Sigma. Or, okay. How would you define astrobiology? It's uh, the philosophy of tomorrow, and it comes from the revolution by Socrates, because before Socrates, the philosophers were uh, not, not, not natural science uh, thinkers. Then with Socrates, they started thinking about themselves, about uh, the man, the human being. Okay, now if you are an astrobiologist, first you need to be a natural science uh, follower. Then you end up being a philosopher, because if you find life, you may think, oh, look, I'm not very special. If you don't find it, you may say, oh, look, how special am I? So in both cases, and during the search, you are making philosophy. And actually, science is applied philosophy. Okay. And so, so astrobiology goes very close to the heart of the, of the problem. Do you have any tips for new researchers that want to enter this field in particular? But I think that <clears throat> any scientist to whom you make the question will have the same answer. That astrobiology is the product of uh, all the existing disciplines. So you may enter seen f from any window into it, from any door. And uh, you must be as open-minded as possible. But a posteriori, a priori, just be a specialist in uh, or geology or cosmology or uh, etc. you name it. But open mind, that's it. What advice do you have for students who would like to have a career in astrobiology? Uh, to be optimistic. <laughs> in the sense, then choose the right country to start. In the right time, because there was a time in which if you were a Spaniard in Spain and you want to be a astrobiology, that was relatively easy. Now it is impossible. In Italy, it's always been extremely difficult. Never totally impossible, but extremely difficult. I guess there are places now like United States, Russia, China, England, in which you can think of a career, you can try to program a career on that. But that is also very time-depending because it's strongly dependent on uh, public funds, which may dry up uh, easily. Do you think there is or has ever been life on Mars? Depending on the definition you give life. If you, if you have reproduction with variations and you don't define of what... Probably the answer is yes. So it means that if you think of a pool of organics in which the dynamo protected the planet uh, f from ex excessive radiation from outside, so you had a window of time in which all the organics could organize and up to a certain level of complexity. 
that's what, of course, just go there and look because you don't know. But first of all, how much is conserved, but if you dig deep enough, you may find traces. But if Mars was exposed to the same infall of uh, meteorites and uh, comets as our planet, it's very likely that a certain level of complexity was reached. So I wouldn't answer to the question what kind of uh, signal you have to look for, but just keep conservative and look for you can define life on this planet and look for it. Probably there is nothing left because the planet changed and it became sterilized by excessive radiations and lack of an active core. So that tells that how special is our planet. But in the first early period, the, I'm not an expert, but they say maybe the first billion years, it was very very similar to the conditions that uh, our planet had. So I would be, I would invest money in looking for traces of life there. If we were to find evidence for life on Mars, what would you do? I said, look, I, <laughs> I wish I was uh, involved into that research. <laughs> no, no, uh, I have no special answer. Uh, you could say, oh, I hope they stay there and uh, they're far enough not to bother us too much. Or on the other side, oh, let's get in contact and uh, let's mix our DNAs like we did with Neanderthal. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I cannot predict. Okay. We mix it with the Neanderthals, and we are two different species. So, we, <laughs> so from the point of view of evol evolution, we are certainly different from uh, from Martians. But okay, so thank you very much. No, thank you. For listening to the Tartan Tardigrade. If you'd like to find out more about the UK Centre for Astrobiology or astrobiology in general, you can visit our website at astrobiology.ac.uk. You'll also find links there to the other episodes of the podcast and a link where you can subscribe via the University of Edinburgh podcast service.